listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week, we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at Fenton Mediation, F-E-N-T-E-N-M-E-D-I-T-I-O-N, uh, what did I say? I lost my track there. F-E-N-T-E-N-M-E-D-I-A-T-I-O-N at gmail.com and at 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook group page to like us and Facebook group to become a member. Also visit YouTube channel Fenton Mediation. Listen to podcasts of Mediation Station on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. Please follow us at our Twitter account, at Fenton Mediation. The conversation today is titled, Reframing Youth Conflict with Mediation Skills. And with me shortly will be Alethea Kador. And we continue to present the program live each Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. through Zoom, because there is no live in-person programming at the station. We will engage in conversation with everyone attending, able to listen and watch. Microphones and webcams will be closed. If anyone wants to contribute, there are two ways or two options to do so. One is to do a chat uh, message, click the, the uh, in the bottom center and type in your message or question and then we'll engage that as part of the conversation tonight. Or you can go to the reactions, click the icon for hand, raise your hand and we'll open your mic for that moment. You can speak to what you want to say as is being displayed now. And then we'll close your mic and we'll continue in the midst of our conversation. And let's see, what else? That's about it, otherwise. I want to transition to the conversation tonight, which is focused on reframing youth conflict with mediation skills. And with me is my friend, my colleague, Alethea Kodor. Welcome tonight, Alethea. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Good, good to see you again. It's been yeah. like a year since we physically saw each other in person. Mm -hmm. It's that been was... about, I think it was March. Um, of last year when I was at the radio station. Yeah, you were there in person, mm -hmm. and we had a conversation on that was focused on black you uh, black community mental health matters. Yeah, and we so, also had another guest with us, Kim Cato. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that audio is actually available on uh, SoundCloud and Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts. Okay. And that was just before we had to really transition to physically not be together in the same space overall. Mm -hmm. So what's your mindset been like over the past year? <laughs> well, actually, it's been a positive experience, I must say, um, having uh, almost a year uh, of you know, thinking and reframing. And for me, it was just a huge reset. Uh, from the last time that you and I spoke, uh, we were just scratching the focus, the, the surface 
of revealing the issues uh, related to Black mental health. And at that time, um, I think we were really concerned about another, well, it was, I don't think it was George Floyd. It was another situation that was going on at the time. That was pri prior to George Floyd. I mm -hmm. think it was not till the summertime of Absolutely. 2020. Yeah. And, you know, there were some things that were brewing and we were just getting to the surface of unveiling a lot of the anti-Black racism that was permeating, or I should say that was more prevalent in um, the current school system, also the justice system. Then we found it out in housing and some of the social structures and social supports. And there was just a big cry for you know, some of these things that were happening and people were just really recognizing and realizing some of the effects that they were suffering under. And a lot of people felt that they were suffering under the effects of racialization. And um, in terms of racialization, that meant discrimination on every level, uh, whether it was systemic or systematic, uh, where they felt um, a sense of disconnect, whether it was with education or and whether it was with social supports. So uh, people really wanted to um, ask the government to take a look at this and just really review, um, you know, some of the concerns that Black Canadians were facing at the time when it came to uh, racism and yeah. police and police. Um, brutality. Yeah, and I mean, we can relate it to or connect it with COVID and the rollout of vaccines mm -hmm. and the whole issue of postal codes and neighborhoods and communities that are not getting their fair representation of the vaccine rollout are the communities that actually have a greater percentage of the workers who are frontline workers who are more greatly susceptible and exposed to the conditions of the virus. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you just look at the uh, whole rollout to begin with, yes, um, I do agree that there are some areas that they're hotspots, and that's because of the density of people that might be located in that area. And then we know that if it's a area that might have a lot of factories or a lot of businesses, that's where people are gonna be gravitating to. Economically, if you're not able to afford certain luxuries of living or commuting to work, you're gonna live closer to where you work so that those areas might be a little bit more dense. And then we can get into urban planning and zoning if we wanna talk about these things because then why are there are large warehouses and factories in certain areas. And, um, you know, geographically, um, yes, there are some concerns that people will have because of the high concentration of numbers. But I mean, I just really was surprised at how um, they decided which places were hotspot, which places had priority where I felt, you know, that's where there could have been a little bit more equity because we all had priority and there could have been a different rollout plan 
and how they could have administered this vaccine. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And when it comes to uh, black youth, I mean, if you're working in a family that, and there are essential workers, then you're highly susceptible to be exposed to COVID. But then the literature that had come out earlier, uh, people were under the impression that um, uh, young people uh, were somehow immune or weren't, you know, so yeah. that caused another concern for families. Right, absolutely. You know, for you. So how about you share some information about your professional background? Let's give some context to who you are and what yeah. you're made. Yeah. Well, um, for people that know, <laughs> um, I do, I am certified as a restorative justice mediator. And uh, that's how I met you, Greg, when I, um, was working for CMSD uh, Downsview as a volunteer. And subsequent to that, I am a child and youth counselor. So I work across the developmental age band and uh, work with youth from all ages from six up until 29. But currently I'm working with adults who may have faced some challenges in their life, whether it would be relationship or work, and they've had a conflict which triggered some uh, emotional reactions. So we just try to figure out what the root cause of um, that trigger. Um, let's try and get to the root of what's behind it. Uh, we set some goals and also try to um, change some behavior and thoughts around the trigger so the person feels more relaxed and confident in situations and they're able to make better decisions and lead with confidence. Right, actually a very supportive process through, uh, you, you know, I, I would believe you're, you're quite an empathic person <clears throat> from my knowledge and my experience and perspective. So what do you see as your intention when you're seeking to engage with people? Well, um, I can just speak specifically uh, to the black community, which, you know, to me was a call to action uh, during the George Floyd murder of last summer, which I started to really think about focusing on my private practice and opening. It. Um, as you know, uh, my practice, CA Consultants, I opened it in October. And to me, it was a call to action to be more visible in the community based on the skills that I had already had. Um, as you know, I was mediating um, in high schools. I was teaching conflict resolution to high school students so they could in turn um, mentor uh, grade nine youth in conflict resolution skills. Um, I worked in hospital-based 
um, programmed in child and adolescent mental health and psychiatry, and I also worked in mobile crisis. So to me, it was just a combination of things that I've already done. And to have a private practice when you're working one-on-one -on -one with people, um, I just found that it was more uh, refreshing that I was able to incorporate all of my skills that I've learned along the way um, to help people um, address some of the harm that was caused um, in their childhood, whether it would be um, through trauma, uh, by choice, or maybe by situation or circumstances. And I wanted to help them address that trauma because they're facing some barriers in their life. So we address those barriers, repair that harm, so that they're able to feel more confident about the decision and the direction that they take. And, you know, from the literature that I've read, um, I can see the patterns that sometimes we might have some behaviors um, that might not be congruent with the way that we actually do present ourselves. And sometimes when we do have those triggers, we realize that it's based on things that weren't resolved in our past. And, um, because of COVID and now that we um, have less distractions, I'm finding that people are really stopping to think about some of the things that have caused them some harm. They're pinpointing where that harm and that energy that they may not have had put that full attention into, they're seeing that there's some deficits there they want to address it because they realize that it's caused some concern, whether physical or psychological, financial, maybe social, where they've had to isolate themselves to address this particular behavior. And now they have the time to address it and they want to make some resolutions um, so that they can lead a more, you know, confident life. So let, let me say that with regard to COVID, it's like a catch-22. Yeah. It's obviously presented a, you know, a major impact in a negative way overall with our lives. And at the same time, it's created an opportunity from what I heard from you that has raised to the surface, more conscious level, because of the nature that we have to stay at home more, and we have to, we're less mobile, we're less socially interactive, that things are happening in the home that have been underlying as a, let's say a, a symbolism of a, a volcano. The lava, as you know, is like brewing. You never know when the volcano will spoo. It erupts at whatever moment. So some of these things have been ever present. And then something has happened that, you know, with COVID because of the, being closer in proximity with family members, things happen. Unfortunate things happen sometimes. Conflict yeah. happens, right? Yeah. And I mean, this is a thing um, that we've noticed with crisis. Um, at a crisis becomes an opportunity. And it's an opportunity um, to examine the current situation and to also, you know, make some suggestions moving forward for a positive outcome. 
So when I look at that, um, you know, we're always in a family that might be always on the go. Um, everyone has their responsibilities and their distractions. And now that we have minimized some of our outlets and things that we may have um, done to occupy and fill our time, we no longer have those things. So now we're forced to look at what? Our home life and our relationships. Yeah. So you have a focus, you have a real strong interest in youth mm -hmm. and youth in conflict. Why, why is that focus for you? Why is that energy there for you? I must be growing up here in Toronto. <laughs> um, this started from high school. Um, I've always had an interest of working with uh, people. Um, and I think it has to do with my grade school co-op placement, where uh, I was working in an elementary school and two of the teachers um, that I worked with, they used to use a lot of sign language to communicate with some of the um, elementary school uh, students that I used to work with because my goal was to be a teacher. So um, my co-op placement was um, in an elementary class and, you know, we would, you know, do all the things, activities, engage, interact, but the students had communication difficulties and uh, to address that barrier, we learned sign language. And I always thought that there's always gonna be some way that I can bridge some gap um, with any individual that I was working with if I'm able to adjust and learn and adapt to that environment. And then um, I was hired uh, to work with other youth when their parents were engaging in therapy. And the social youth workers used to just come out and let me know, hey, they had a really good session. And I thought, hey, I could do this. You know, I'm already working with the young people. I'm sure I could find something that was similar for that age. And then I just got into the field of child and youth care. Right. And then I, um, gravitated to many different interests from education um, to uh, hospital-based and then community-based programming, which I really enjoy right now. And uh, what I'm seeing with youth and their parents, um, you know, it's just about the relationships. Parents are realizing that maybe they didn't really spend as much time or maybe they've had some trauma that they haven't dealt with in their past and it had affected their interactions with the individual. So now they're addressing, you know, what's causing that barrier in their relationship. And they're really looking at repairing um, that relationship by addressing the harm that was caused. What type of uh, lived experiences of youth or for youth do you want people to be better informed about? You know, the youth, tend to be not given the space and the place to have a lot of voice. Mm -hmm. So what would you share from your experience of what would be helpful for people to know? Well, from uh, my experience, you know, we all want to have that sense of belonging and uh, inclusion, which means that um, they just want to be understood. 
and I find that you know has to be done um, from an early age just developing those skills and always having that openness um, so that they have that safety to um, express themselves and to be themselves um, I find that boundaries are important. However, again, it's just about understanding that individual and um, developing that relationship. And it should be a place where, you know, it's mutually exclusive, there's respect, there's exchange. That person should be able to feel comfortable with disagreements, you know, it's a mutual exchange of a relationship. Um, and, you know, it doesn't happen overnight that's developed in time. Um, but I think once they know that there's going to be some equity there in terms of being heard and that um, there'll be some ideas that you may suggest, however, they're given the autonomy to make those decisions, then you'll see... Um, Right. Some differences in the relationship. I find there, it's, there's going to be a challenge. Some people do have some behavioral um, reactions or emotions that come out with any challenging relationship. There's going to be conflicts, but it's just how you manage that relationship and, you know, what that desired outcome is because, you know, we do want to learn in the end you know, and return to some type of homeostasis where that relationship is balanced and, you know, there's some healing that can come from it. So uh, there's a comment. I find that knowing about and developing boundaries is very difficult. Are there any strategies that you, uh, let's see, what's the balance of that? Are there any strategies you found that work for youth or adults? Mm-hmm. What's your response? Um, well, I've just had a couple of responses from, you know, I'm just thinking about some of the current interactions I've had. And I mean, I guess it depends on the age, the age and the stage of development. And I always go back to that because, you know, there are some youth who are really mature with their language and they're able to, um, you know, have some type of exchange and dialogue. But my thing is um, that you have to just be clear, clear in your communication of what your expectations are and what you expect from them. And if you do have some, well, I call them expectations and I find that some youth don't want to have a lot placed on them, but we have to look at the role and the position of um, what we want for our family and what we expect for our family. And I find that everyone has an individual role to play. And what's challenging youth um, and what I find is facing youth right now is them understanding what that role is and um, how they fit in their family. Because it, it depends on how you know, you have your individual goals for your family, then you'll have your individual goals for each child. 
I think those things have to be clear. You want to build that relationship. You're getting to know their personality. Um, there are some things in terms of their temperament um, that some people might have more of an easy-go-lucky uh, person versus someone that might give you a little bit of pushback and give you a little challenge. You have to get to know the person. You have to get to know their individuality. You have to get to understand how um, they engage and interact in their family. And youth right now just want to be validated. Um, what's really challenging them right now is, you know, their vulnerability around COVID and also what their certainty is about the future. Things are just really up in the air right now. I have a lot of students that are graduating and they're saying, well, what are my options for my future? Everything's work from home. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be owning a home right now. Um, moving out of the city looks really good. So um, I say about like this, the strategies to me is a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. Um, if you have more than one child or a grown adult in the home, everybody needs their individual time. And I also like to talk a lot to a lot of families about family meetings. What do you mean by that? Uh, family meetings where the family gets together and they discuss um, some of the day-to-day um, interactions and things that are going on in the home. You know, if someone has a very, you know, heated topic or a topic of interest that they want to discuss, especially when it comes around racialization and police brutality, also about the decision of George Floyd and the uh, trial that just concluded this week. Um, you know, people were creating space so that they can talk about these things and address what's going home and what they're seeing on TV and doing it in a way um, that shows some empathy and some understanding of what's going on in the current situation. Because a lot of youth are feeling disconnected from their family because they're feeling like there's these issues that are going on. And how come no one's talking about it at home? How come so, uh, yeah. so how do you see youth and their parents being affected by systemic realities, systemic racism, barriers, obstacles that they have to experience each and every day? Well, I just want to address, you know, youth, and then we have you know, BIPOC youth. And I know people are saying like, is there differences? And there are, there are some differences that need to be addressed. And um, especially around um, expectations and a conversation that um, a parent might have might look different in a black and indigenous home, especially when it comes to dealing with getting stopped by police, and also when it comes to, um, you know, understanding who we are and, you know, the justice system and the education system. And, you know, we have to face that reality because these things were already exposed by students and students were demanding 
that their curriculum needs to change because it just does not reflect um, their current situation. And that's the disconnect because we have come from a school system that always taught the same way and the same type of structure. And our students right now are saying, you know what, that information doesn't serve us. Um, what we're seeing in our community, what we're seeing on our world is different. And we need space in our home to start dealing with those issues. Mom and dad, you know, we just watched it on TV and we never really talked about it. We're just like, oh geez, look what happened in that part of the world. But yeah. it's happening in Toronto, right? We had three yeah. indigenous and black youth harmed by police. Yeah, I wanted to get into the Know, I'm talking about the traditional way the education system presents its subject matter, its content, and how youth connect with that or not, and how, especially with the Black community as well, and the whole idea that there's no representation or minimal acknowledgement in the content, the subject matter, for youth to say, hey, that's part of my world too. And you know, when we're talking about inclusion and belonging, that's where it first starts when we enter the school system. And um, you know, when we're trying to find um, information that we can relate to, we're automatically talked about is slavery. So that's where the separation and the division starts. Uh, because when you're sitting in a classroom when someone just says, hey, um, people that look like you are slaves. <laughs> you know, how do you feel sitting in that classroom? That just re reinforces the whole notion of, you know, the marginalization and the whole labeling and the separation of individuals and the, the lack of feeling belonging as part of the overall society and social engagement. I mean, I can, I can speak so far. You obviously can speak much better than me. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Erin, for, you know, highlighting um, that I am addressing trauma-informed practice. But I'm looking at it also not from a Eurocentric lens, but I'm also looking at it from an Afrocentered lens because I am identified as a Black person, right? A person of color. Um, who's also suffered from the effects of racialization myself. I mean, I am an immigrant. I came to this country when I was seven years old. I was born in the UK. And my first formal years of education was a UK British education system. And then I came here. And then uh, I was asked to take a test. Yeah. to see what level of, you know, intelligence. I was only seven years old. Like, how would I know <laughs> if I was smart or not? But that's the school system, right? In terms of uh, when we talk about education and testing, we do grade three, we do grade six, we do grade nine. So at that time, it, we weren't that heavily into testing, but I took this test. They said I was gifted. 
And that's where there was other problems because uh, to be a black person, to be an immigrant and to test in a high range was unheard of at the time. And my parents were told, well, in order for your child to go to this specific high school that's in our area, you need to take this test. And when I passed the test, <laughs> it, was it was unexpected. It was unexpected, yeah. So then um, to give the, the supports that any other gifted um, Eurocentric person would have gotten, uh, of course I wasn't going to be able to get that. Well, I mean, the construct of the test, as you reference, is, you know, from a Eurocentric, a white-based mentality and mindset. And so people who have don't identify per se or haven't been informed of that per se mm -hmm. that's going to be an automatic barrier that i would think and you know going back to that you weren't expected to pass this test to thus be uh, registered at this particular school was in you know the system would say gosh we failed we didn't create enough barriers for this person not to get in mm -hmm. Yeah, and I surpassed those levels. And then when you wanted to get into the gifted program in high school, which was few and far between, then there was other barriers. Um, Pre you know, presented? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then after being told, you know, you can only go to a certain level, a whole bunch of other things, which we know is not true, which is based on systemic racism. So what, what's your experience for youth and conflict uh, and the conflicts they go through? Well, I just think right now, because it all stems from entering into the school system and the lack of identity and uh, not knowing who we are and being told that we came as slaves so that that is our position in life is to work for white people and to be under control of that ideology. Um, even though we are immigrants here, um, we can understand that um, Black Canadians and the struggles that they have had in terms of identity and inclusion were always a struggle. Then we look at the history of Black Americans and um, how their history and their, um, you know, their way of being was hidden and also destroyed. I read the history of what happened in Southern Ontario, and I'm coming back to Canada's history and Southern Ontario's history of traveling up to Gray County and seeing Flesherton and Priceville and seeing all these small towns going all the way out to Sabo Beach and reading the history of Black Canadians that settled up there and seeing remnants of the homes that they built and how they cleared a lot of land. And there's remnants of Harrison Park when you're going all the way up to Owen Sound of Black Canadian history. They've been celebrating Emancipation Day uh, for 150 years. So yeah, how come I'm not taught that in my own school? I just happened right. 
to connect with some amazing educators in the school board who had a private trip to go up to um, up to that settlement. And then Lieutenant Governor Alexander also declared um, a historic site up in that area of Gray County um, has a Black Canadian historic site. So that's all we're asking for is just to include our history, which has longevity. We even have Harriet Tubman. She came to Canada. She was rooted in St. Catharines. There's a school named after her. They show through the Underground Railroad that she came through Canada. She came through Ontario. So why can't we learn about her? Why can't we learn about the great things that Black people have contributed to this country? How do you you, um, rationalize how the youth, when they enter into the system, the education system, let alone they make their in contact with the criminal system, justice system, because we know that's uh, a, a major complication too. You you know that directly from your history of doing restorative justice mediation processes, and a significant number of the youth who came into contact at you know, the youth court at 2201 Finch Avenue West, mm-hmm. let alone the other youth court at 1000 Finch West as well, right? And then you work to engage. What, what is your sense of the impact these, these senses of the system being so... I, I, I don't want to use words to define that experience because that's not... Mm-hmm. for me to define okay i mean because we've all had different school experiences and that's what i chalk that up to um when i'm addressing parents that um have been in the school system here they have a different experiences as, as their children would so when you're not able to identify with people or historic um events that include you you feel disconnected in school. You don't feel like you belong. So coming to school becomes a place of anxiety. It comes a place of sadness because you go there and you're not hearing anything that reinforces or validates who you are in your existence and your history. So going there becomes performative. You're just showing up, but you're not really investing any value or any worth into what you're doing and we have those students that barely pass or they might get into a conflict in their community because they feel a disconnect they get charged and then they have a record and depending on if it happened in your school or in your area you might be part of the safe schools but now they've changed all that zoning laws Um, and when i was doing safe schools Um, that was part of our responsibility was to connect with the youth that may have had a criminal charge and they had to leave their school and attend another school because of safety areas or bail conditions. So I would just check in with them, uh, just make sure that they had someone to address their needs, 
talk about their school experience because they were out of place. They weren't even in their area, which could have increased more risk for these students to not be in a safe space. So for these students that had already had charges, they were asked to leave their community, attend another school that wasn't in their area, that opened them up to a whole bunch of other issues because of you know gang affiliation, uh, coding, zoning, certain areas you're not allowed to be in if you are from another neighborhood, and the school becomes a territory zone. School should be the neutral place, but it does not become a neutral place because depending on who you were affiliated with, if they find out that you go to that school, then you know you have to be aware of your environment, your surroundings. And I had many students that I worked with that they had to get safe schooled. And then they got into another conflict at the school because somebody remembered them from the neighborhood and then there was another issue so that's what most of my mediation was in the school system was just um addressing previous issues that they could have had in their communities um some of the students that had conflict with each other they knew each other from elementary something wasn't resolved and they carried it on to high school or they were in the community an issue happened in the community as a result the person knows what school they go to and the conflict is carried on in in that environment in the school environment so we would be addressing individually what caused the harm if there was a way that we could address the conflict before it escalated into more uh, of a dangerous situation, then I would connect with the other person that was, um, that had agreed to mediate the conflict, um, get their perspective of what they saw um, has a change in their relationship. And if they are open to um, addressing um, that harm and repairing the relationship. So I have been successful in mediating cases that could have been a uh, potential high conflict. And uh, some of it is based on misunderstanding. Some of it is based on hurt. Some of it is based on old wounds from family members that just happened to be in the same affiliation in the same community. And they just carried it on from generation and then the conflict happens and then they're willing to address it and also um, i would mediate teacher and student um, conflicts uh, because of the way that sometimes teachers you know by no fault of their own uh, they may have some expectations but it causes a conflict in the classroom based on how they've expressed um, what they're asking the student to do. And uh, when they're able to talk in a more quieter one-on-one -on -one space with some support, then the teacher's able to be clear in their communication of what they were expecting. And then sometimes we see that's because of transference 
and countertransference where they really believed in their student, they were disappointed, and then it became a conflict. But um, it was because the teacher really believed in them and they really wanted to see them do well, but that student wasn't at that position or place to receive it. But once we were able to mediate the situation, then the student is able to receive um, from the master. <laughs> I was just thinking about that now. But you know what I mean? It, I mean, it's just about the reciprocal relationship, right? And that mutual um, understanding of uh, really focusing on that exchange and really wanting to, like I said, return that relationship into something that's mutually beneficial to the both of them. So I always find yeah. that there's that where that invested energy is. Youth just want to be heard and they want to be validated and they want to know that your relationship with them is important. Yeah. And so, uh, you, you know, as a, as a mediator that I think one of our major responsibilities is to create the conditions for people to feel they can come into that space and place to have the opportunity to express, to be heard, and to be listened to, and to contribute to create new and positive opportunities for change. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so mindful at CMSD on Eddystone that it was defined as being a neutral space as part of the color scheme. You know, in the, in the Jane Finch community, there was the reds and the blues, and certain neighborhoods were defined. And when we would schedule events, especially through the children and youth program, that we had to be mindful of the backstory of the, the neighborhood and how that might impact particular youth. And maybe there's other youth who wanted to participate and engage, yet because of the, the community expectations i can't go there that's not allowed per se because it would make me in a risky situation unsafe and put me in a vulnerable place that okay something may happen here high probability yeah those are part of the conditions that i think were so imperative that we need to be mindful of not just okay we're doing a process and that's it there's more to understand about the people we work with and we try to help and support in creating those supportive conditions for people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, cause I just find the whole area codes and postal codes and see how we can talk about that in terms of um, putting up barriers and also addressing territories. But isn't it the same with uh, COVID that now they're addressing by area codes, where to go, where's the hot spots, and people are like, well, I'm not gonna be going over there. Well, well there's labels with that. Yeah. And with labels, there's judgment. And there's like, okay, them and us, mm -hmm. marginalization. And so us is okay, as long as them don't become, come with us. Mm -hmm. and, and so help and me over, yeah yeah right. over to my postal code i don't <laughs> yeah but, but that's all part of like, 
that's all that's all about you know stigmatizing people and community members and separation rather than inclusivity and let's work together rather than help them help us that's the i me type of mindset rather than the us we so how do you see mediation skills because that's fundamental from what we want to talk about too how do you see that as being an opportunity to equip the youth to quote a better space and place well i'm you know thanks laura um what i um just attributed to and i think you said the same thing in terms of creating that space um so that they can have their opportunity to share and to address um, their own needs from their own perspective. And I think that's what I was getting to when I was talking about the family meetings yeah. um, and how we would do our restorative justice circles. You want um, to give a little explanation for the benefit of people who may not be as informed about that? Okay. Um, well, I've done them in two different ways. Um, so Share whatever you do. That's okay. okay. So in the school system, um, if there was an incident and a lot of people in the class or maybe it was in the hallway and people were affected by it and they witnessed some of the harm, whether it could be amongst two teenagers, it could be the police coming into the school, it could be, you know, um, an interaction with a parent because we're in a public school. So um, people may have, might witness a trauma or a serious event and they may have some lingering effects based on uh, what they witnessed. So depending on how they were uh, directly affected by that harm or indirectly affected, they do have the opportunity to be part of the healing circle. And when we talk about the healing circle, it's the people that were immediately involved um, in the event. They have an opportunity to bring a support person. Then you'll have a representative of the community. Um, you might have um, a community member or an elder, um, someone, you know, of position. Um, that uh, has some influence in the community and you know they might be a consistent person that you can call upon um, to mediate situations and be part of the healing circle then you'll have that person's family the other person's family and some other highlighted community members and then depending on where the uh, healing circle takes place then there might be a representative maybe from the school, uh, the principal, um, someone that wants to just be a part of addressing the harm and bringing that balance to the community. And um, I always like to source where um, this principle comes from because it is an indigenous and African principle. That when, you say, when you say source, what do you mean by that? Well, um, when I read it in, when I was doing my training, um, you know, I was just looking at some of the literature in how um, this circle was formed in the first place. And I don't think I was aware at that time 
that it was an indigenous um, principle that some of these um, practices were something that was implemented many centuries ago. And I always felt that that was part of us acknowledging where we got that structure from, where we got that model from. Well, I, I think there's been historically a lack of recognition and uh, from white or Western societies that the roots of our, many of our practices are from Eastern cultures or African centric cultures for sure and you know it's the whole thing about taking ownership and then marginalizing anybody else who's not part of that identity unfortunately and so you know this is an opportunity for us to educate and inform and also push back at that kind of mentality and mindset and practice because you know we're here to talk and at the same time we're here to provoke people to actually do something mm -hmm. And I agree. And I mean, I think you feel so elated when you see that there is a piece of your identity that has been included in um, learning how to resolve conflicts and decision making, because the media paints a different picture of uh, Black identity as aggressive, as violent, always causing problems. That's why there's more policing because this community cannot keep themselves under control when in fact that's not true we've been pivotal we're, we're the ones who created decision making and diplomacy oh my gosh we had nelson mandela in jail for 25 years which other person do you know <laughs> that could stay in there for that long right so there right. must be something about that person the mentality the the um the resilience of this community that um, they can withstand some of these horrible conditions and things that have been placed on them because their history has been erased. Yeah. Acknowledge, we just wanna be acknowledged for what we've done. And it's not like people don't know what we've done, don't get me wrong. There's just no consistency. And now there has been a ratification um, through Ontario colleges and also through the education system that they will have more black focused education in the school systems. That's all when, we want. When you say eradication, what do you mean by that? Um, is that, did I say, oh, well, they just want our, sorry if I said eradication, but I think I meant. I, I, I thought I heard eradication. Okay, no, what I meant was, uh, ratification, which means that okay, maybe contract. you said ratification. Yeah, it's just there was you know a the contract, and I think there was a demand over the summer that students were saying, "How come I don't have any black focused courses? Um, how come we don't have anything about racial uh, justice? How come I don't have anything about the history of black and indigenous people?" So they're demanding that, and now the schools are saying, "Okay, let's." include it when we can let's acknowledge um the contributions of certain people <laughs> sorry and um you know this is uh groundbreaking for people they feel relieved they feel like now some of that harm has been you know 
restored at the fact that their history and um, the contributions that they've made will be um, highlighted and recognized, not only in a servitude way, but in the fact of inventions and creations and um, those wonderful contributions. And how I tie this into youth and family meetings, this is what people want to hear in their home. You know, they're just talking about and validating the contributions that they have had, um, you know, talking about who they are, learning about the history, um, acknowledging racialization, so, you know, just youth want to hear that. They want to hear those stories. They want to hear from their parents' perspectives of how they dealt with things. Or if you're pissed off about George Floyd, they want to hear that. But just to just, you know, turn on your TV and just say, oh my gosh, look at that. Look what's happening. You know, youth don't want to hear that anymore. They don't want to see that disconnect. They want you to have those dialogues in your home, even if you are of a privileged person. I mean, you know, racial injustice affects everybody. So the youth just want to talk about it and they just want to hear your opinion. That's all. And I want to acknowledge that I did not hear correctly. It was ratification. So that's <laughs> yeah, my I apology. Word. I just used that. <laughs> Sorry? It could be ratified. I don't know if there's ratification. I, I probably just made it up. <laughs> Well, it wasn't what I said, or oh, sorry, what I said that I thought I heard. And that, nevertheless, it's yeah. what you intended. So that's what I want to acknowledge for sure. And you know, I just want to add to people just to let them understand about the school to prison pipeline, because I don't think I've addressed that. Um, and what I mean by the school to prison pipeline, when you're not able to connect and identify with any of the stories that relate to you school becomes a different type of uh, purpose. Um, it becomes a purpose to socialize, to recruit, and also to come up with different opportunities um, to engage with people. It's not about learning. It becomes a survival place and it takes on a whole different meaning. And when youth get pushed out and then they go into the community and they feel a disconnect, that's when they don't really care. They don't, they don't feel um, that connection. Lack so of belonging. Where, yep, and that's where the harm increases. And the vulnerability and the susceptibility to the other conditions of lived reality that's going on in the broader world. And so there's people who may try to take advantage of that, mm -hmm. of someone too. Yeah. And so, um, I don't so know. Expl expl explain Sorry. a little bit more about the, the link of the connection of the pipeline. Well, um, you know, when you don't have a sense of belonging, then you're going to gravitate towards people that make you feel included. And um, if part of that element is criminalized, then in order for you to be uh, connected to that peer group, um, you will do what that peer group is doing. And if that's where you will get your validation, then you will continue to do something that makes you feel good because you're getting validation and you're getting reinforcement. And um, if you don't have a high school education, we already know what happens. This is a 
tech society. And if you cannot keep up and you don't feel that you are worthy of, you know, having things and you're just going to be with the group that will meet your needs. And if this is the way that you choose to have your needs met, then you will do that because without a formal education, we already know um, where that could lead to. And I'm not saying it happens to everybody, um, but for some uh, people who do get enticed by this way of life and um, materialism and um, being able to survive, then you will use those survival tactics. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of uh, what are you hoping to happen, happen as part of our conversation? What do you want to see happen? Well, um, it's funny that you asked me that because I was, uh, prior to you and I connecting today, um, I'm working on this Black Youth series. And it's just part of a series that I was working for for a community agency. And we're just looking at how our families, especially the Black family functions and how they um, interact with each other. And it's all around relationships. And one of the questions I had uh, to the youth is like, what are the, the challenges that are facing youth um, today? And um, not to really say that, you know, what are youth's problems, right? But I think they're noticing, you know, the not a sense of belonging, um, you know, uh, the issues of uh, validation, having to have their parents' expectations or lack of expectations placed on them. Um, you know, now they're in a remote world. How do they function and survive? Um, are they feeling socially isolated? Because we never really had to um, experience a pandemic of this magnitude. I mean, I remember SARS, and SARS was quite concerning for people that were in the hospital system. I don't think people outside of the hospital system realized the magnitude of what we had to go through um, having to work in that system. Now I'm hearing the same thing with COVID. Um, the hospital workers are stretched and they're overworked and um, they're exhausted and it's the same pattern. So um, what I was getting to is the fact that, you know, I'm seeing some duplications in terms of how we manage things. And um, yeah, my, ha my heart goes out to people right now. I mean, we're just going through a lot. And then we have youth that feel that they are susceptible and um, they're immune to the disease and they're not as affected when in fact, I mean, there's so many different variants happening every day and it's becoming really concerning. I am glad that people are getting vaccinated, absolutely. Um, it's just that this is a good time to speak with your youth and have these conversations. And, um, you know, just find out, like, how are they feeling? Like, check in with them. I mean, this has been like a serious 
um, phenomena to me. I mean, I'm really interested in it. I, I, it just really blows me away. I think I've read so much scientific data in the last year on just understanding uh, what's happening here. And then can you imagine if you have a youth that you have to explain this to? Um, I mean, parents are very challenged themselves. So whatever I can do to support people and uh, reach out, then please do that. Um, or it may even provide, sorry, or it may even provide an opportunity for the youth who are very socially aware, uh, social media conscious and aware to have the conversation with their parents to better inform them. Because yeah. some of the parents, because of their technical skills, or, or their busyness with going out and making a living to support the family, don't have the opportunity to hear the information. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing, you know, because I was on a lot of um, COVID um, webinars and that's what they were trying to do. They were saying not everybody has access to the internet. So then how can we um, share this information so that everybody gets the consistency and that was it you just have to get the young people to translate um we had to you know just increase the visibility of the message and um that's what i say also to parents you know you have to just create that time so that you can understand what they're saying so they can get that message if you're there to support them you are um, if you've had some difficulties in the past, now is the time to apologize. Or maybe you have some time now to state your position and the reason why um, you made those decisions. Let's make things crystal clear with our communication so that, you know, they can trust you. And then they can confide in you and then you can start making those decisions. But I think the family meeting is just a great place to start. I think a lot of parents do get concerned. Um, their personality comes out. They might be afraid of, you know, what their, you know, their youth or their grown children might find out. But this is your current reality. This is your personality. This is who you are. You know, never time for a change. Uh, if you need to make that change, why not do it now? But now you could do it with some support because there's therapists out there um, that are um, ready to help and ready to help you um, face those difficult conversations. And, and in addition, how we see the connection of the mediation skills with the communication and the dealing with differences and not to see them as barriers, to see them as opportunities. So people can actually come into a space like the meeting space that you're so uh, fond of and very, uh, you know, fundamentally promoting and that they can have those safe conversations of difficult matters as much as possible because it, it, it's not an ideal world. We like to think it is and hope it is, there are struggles that people go through continuously and having the personal capacity, the competencies to have these conversations through their struggles in a supportive manner in nature, mediation skills, communication skills, interpersonal skills, these life skills are foundational. 
And, you know, once we do remove this thing of wanting to be right, um, it's not about that. It's just, you know, giving that person's time to be heard and to be validated and also to have a plan so that the next time there's um, harm caused, um, you know, there's an opportunity, like you said, to repair it and just find um, a different way of strengthening that relationship. Yeah, and the idiom, just because doesn't mean it has to be. Mm -hmm. So we're needing to close out very soon. I just wanna put it out to anybody in the crowd there. If you wanna present a question or a comment, uh, anything that we wanna help with for tonight, now that we have an opportunity with Alethea with us, and uh, and I, I, I say uh, silence is a good tool. Doesn't mean that <laughs> it's not. People are just sitting in the crowd with such provocative ideas. So hopefully this will resonate afterwards. That uh, you know people can be agents of change as well, positive change in their communities. To, that uh, and get this this uh, video, the audio out too. And when you're, you know, you said today that you were drafting or putting together some kind of package of material to help better inform community. I mean, we all benefit fundamentally when we know more about each other mm -hmm. and not just how we quote identify per se. Yes, and you know, people can more than welcome go to my website. Um, I have some great blogs there if they like to read it. Um, and you know, I think this is the hardest thing, Greg, is just to say, you know what, I, I'm just going to make a change and just do something different. Once you acknowledge it and you're aware of it, then you want to take that action um, to make those changes. So, um, hey. This is the time to do that. You want to put um, what's the website or what's the uh, the link that you're oh, okay. referencing? It's um, caconsultants.org, and I'll just put it in the chat. And. Um, Oh, shoot, I spelled that incorrectly. Can you believe that? Um, hey, and I do have um, some blogs. I have my podcast there. And, um, you know, if you have some questions or you want to download my free uh, booklet, you can do that. Everything's on there. So, triple W dot caconsultants.org correct okay what what is uh one final question basically yeah. what does having this conversation mean to you what is it well um i enjoy speaking with you greg <laughs> every year we have these really stimulating conversations over the past couple of months and um for me i just think it's important because you know, even though I may do different things in my uh, daily life when I'm interacting with people, um, you know, the mediation skills and uh, just looking at restorative justice, um, 
repairing the harm um, has been something um, that has always um, helped me in my quest for social justice, that people do have the equity and the inclusion to address um, some of those harms and also to have their problem-solving tools and coping strategies acknowledged. And for too long, um, the indigenous and Afro-centered uh, principles of healing haven't been acknowledged. And I just like to put that to the forefront that, you know, we've, we've been creating these systems. Uh, we just acknowledge for it. Uh, uh, that's the point. It's to acknowledge and to celebrate that it's as much of or even more so the roots of how we really are in terms of this society mm -hmm. that giving value and that uh, acknowledgement overall so we don't have to wait a year for another gig together <laughs> we can think of some other thought-provoking uh, focused conversation we can have and we can do so if that's up to you, you know, I'm putting you on the public spot here. Nevertheless, I, I think there's a, there's a kindred connection. So, yeah, you know, I'll message you about something. <laughs> okay. And you know, I'm open to, uh, you know, as a provocateur, an agitator, those are some of my identities. Was there a hand up for a moment? Yeah. I saw, I saw a yellow hand and it flashed before me and then left. Mm. So, Anyways, well, I just want to thank people for acknowledging the work that I do, um, and I will continue to do it. Um, and I enjoy collaborating with others. Um, that makes us have more uh, allies, more people that want to um, support the work. Yes, for sure. So I, I oh, there's that's where the definition. Erin's saying clapping. That was her hands. <laughs> She's clapping. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Okay, so thanks, everyone. We're going to say good night and see you next week. And watch out for the um, video on Fenton Mediation. And then also, I'll share that with Alethea. And then, you know, we'll get spread the word. Because this is about messaging and and getting as many people as possible to be informed and educated. So, yeah, the screen's going to close momentarily. So, say good night. Good night. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alethea. I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, nice meeting you, Laura. Take care.